Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Let's pray as we begin this morning. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said that, Father. The work of the Spirit is a sovereign work. And we're asking that the winds of the Spirit would blow upon us now. There are no doubt some in this room who still do not have eyes to see the kingdom of heaven. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would blow upon them in such a way that they would see and they would come alive through the preaching of your word. And yet, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would take the word of God the breathed out words of God here in Matthew chapter 5. And you would apply them to the hearts of your people here this morning in such a way, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would understand more deeply who you are, your glory, your kingdom, what Christ has done for us, and who he has called us to be in this world. So I pray that you would do that sovereign work. Spirit blow, we ask. We are needy. We are desperate for that. We cannot do it on our own. So would you move and work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, this morning we're looking at verses 13 to 16. Last week, we concluded this section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. If you notice there, chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, And so this week, we're getting ready now to launch into a new section, a new portion of this sermon of Jesus, which is really going to make up the bulk here of the Sermon on the Mount. Because up to this point, if you remember Jesus, here in what's really been the introduction to what some have said the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus, he is talking about the characteristics and traits of those who are citizens of the kingdom. Or as he calls it, the kingdom of heaven. So he's been describing here those who are truly his disciples. And what it looks like if you're going to follow him. If you're a citizen of the kingdom. This will be the lifestyle of those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. Colossians chapter 1. That's what we've seen so far. But now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to pivot here from the Beatitudes into, as I said, really what is the main teaching of this sermon. And so 
we might be tempted to think then that he has now left the Beatitudes behind, right? He's, he's done, he's finished with them, he's sort of moving on here, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Because now, he isn't finished yet, and beginning here now in verse 13, he is going to begin to apply that description that we saw in the Beatitudes, he's going to apply that to how we live as citizens of his kingdom. And what we're going to begin to see here in this next section is that Jesus intends for his disciples to wield an influence in this world. He intends for his kingdom citizens to have an influence, to have an impact on this world. That those who are poor in spirit, those who are mournful and meek, those who pursue righteousness and are merciful and pure in heart and peacemaking, those who possess those character traits, they're going to have an influence on this world. Last week, if you notice there, we looked at the eighth and final beatitude in verse 10, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And if you remember, we said that to whatever degree that we as kingdom citizens exemplify these character traits listed here, we will experience persecution. That persecution will come. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I, I think that as we, as we looked at the reality of that, the, the reality of persecution, test this to see if I'm right, okay? As we, as we unpack that, some of us might be tempted then to do one of two things. As we think about the reality of persecution in this world, you and I, we might be tempted to do one of two things. It could lead us, this idea of persecution, to respond in one of two ways. Two possible sinful tendencies. And these two tendencies, these two responses have unfortunately marked the church over the course of history. These two tendencies, I think, are something we're all susceptible to. Two temptations that I think this church could face in the days ahead, knowing persecution could be on the rise. So what are the two temptations? Here they are. Number one, we compromise. We compromise. If the world hates us for who we are, then one way to just get along is to give in a little here or there, right? That's one way. We compromise. We compromise our convictions. We compromise the truth so as not to be the objects of scorn or of mistreatment or of ridicule. I mean, do we really need to be so dogmatic anyways? Do we really need to be so distinct and to stand out and to be different from this world? I mean, couldn't we reach more people if we were more like the world? And when we do that, we compromise. And yet when we do that, church, not only do the culture's values, the, the, the world begin to shape us rather than Christ and His kingdom, but it isn't too long before we begin to look and act more like the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of Christ. And here's what happens. We lose all 
influence in this world. All influence. No, we cannot be like the world and hope to have an impact for Christ on the world. That's temptation number one, compromise. Here's temptation number two. If that's one end of the spectrum, here's the other. We isolate. We we retreat. So whether we fear persecution or we fear contamination from the world, it causes us to retreat and withdraw into a place where the world can't touch us. Because if I'm not in contact with the world, then it's not going to contaminate me or my children. Or I can sort of just secretly live here in this world without the threat of persecution. And what we do is we isolate ourselves, we insulate ourselves from the world, we cut ourselves off from the world. Now, by the way, it isn't necessarily all a bad thing to want to insulate your, your children from some of the things of the world. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that as soon as you find yourself completely cut off from this world, where there's a barrier between you and the world, again, you lose all influence. And, and you're no longer like Jesus, who rubbed shoulders with the worst of sinners, and yet he remained perfectly holy and had enormous influence. And so Jesus, he doesn't want his kingdom citizens to be either separatists, isolated, cut off, or chameleons. We're just like the world. He doesn't want either. In fact, listen to what he prays for his people, his disciples, as we face these two very real temptations to compromise or isolate. Listen to what he says in John 17, verse 14. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I've called them out. They're part of a different kingdom. Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, don't remove them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them holy. Keep them distinct. Don't let them compromise, he's saying. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What does he pray for? He doesn't pray the Father will remove us. He prays the Father will protect us. Why? Because he intends for his kingdom citizens to have an influence on this world. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. So then how are we to relate to the world without compromise and without retreat? And in verses 13 to 16, Jesus gives two answers. There's two pictures here of what his kingdom citizens will be in this world. They will be salt and they will be light. Matthew chapter 5, let's see it together. If you have your place there, would you stand with me? Beginning in verse 13. The apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recording the very words of Jesus himself. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I told you at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, our study of this sermon of Jesus, that it breaks down really into three parts. There's three sections here. Section number one, notice we called the blessings of the kingdom, which go from chapter 5, verse 3, all the way down to verse 16. That's the blessings of the kingdom. That's section one. Then the second section, section number two, we saw is the radical righteousness of the kingdom. The righteousness, radical righteousness Jesus demands. And we see that beginning next time, notice, in chapter 5, verse 17, and really going all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. It's really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount almost, the bulk of the sermon, this radical righteousness of his kingdom citizens. But then the final section, the third section we see are the illustrations for entering the kingdom, which we see there beginning in chapter 7, verse 13, and going all the way to verse 27, the end of the chapter, where he's contrasting two ways. So those are the three sections. And, and so then, this week, we're concluding there this first section of the blessings of the kingdom. We've just seen the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 12, which are the blessings of God to Jesus' disciples, where he says, blessed are these eight blessings pronounced on his disciples, these future blessings that are coming. But now, in our text this morning, before he moves into the main section, here in verses 13 to 16, we see how Jesus' kingdom citizens will be a blessing to others as well. So not only do we get blessings, we saw in the Beatitudes, but we're going to be a blessing to others. So in other words, these verses this morning are a description of how Christians will bless the world. The influence, the impact we are to have on this world. So how does Jesus intend to, to relate to the world? Well, he gives two answers. He intends, we see, for us to be salt in verse 13, and he intends for us to be light, verse 14. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these two remarkable metaphors here. And what I want you to do is I want you to see the importance, as we understand both of them, the importance of what it's going to mean if you and I, church, are going to have a positive effect on this world. So notice, it's not only going to mean persecution. Yes, it will mean that. There, there will be many who are repelled but also, there's going to be some, if we're functioning in these two ways, they're going to be drawn in. And so, Jesus intends for us to relate to the world under these two headings this morning. The salt of the earth, verse 13, and the light of the world, verse 14. First, heading number one, notice with me, the salt of the earth. Verse 13, notice... Notice how the pattern now changes from blessed are, in verses 3 to 12, to you are, verses 13 and 14. Notice that change. 
Notice also that Jesus, he doesn't command us to be salt and light. These are not commands. These are not imperatives. They, they do sort of carry this imperative force, but they're not commands. No. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. So just like we saw in the Beatitudes, he's describing what his disciples already are. This is what you are. Now, isn't that encouraging? It should be encouraging to you because just like the characteristics we just saw don't always feel like blessings, right? So also, oftentimes, I think you and I, we don't really feel like we're making any sort of impact in this world. We, we don't often feel like we're making any sort of influence on the world around us, do we? I mean, who am I? I'm a, I'm a nobody. I don't have a platform. I can't change the world. And Jesus says, no, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is who you are, Christian. In fact, notice there the definite article. Now, you know what a definite article is, right? Help them out, youth, students. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're not just a light. You are the light. You're not just one kind of salt among many. You are the salt. In other words, there is no other. You are the salt. You are the light. Even if that weren't encouraging enough, he then goes on to say in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So what sort of influence does Jesus suppose his disciples are going to have? Jesus says, your influence is global. Your influence is world wide. Your influence is on all mankind. How's that for encouraging? So what kind of difference are we to have? First of all, verse 13, look there. You are the salt of the earth. Now, what does he mean by salt? Well, I'm willing to bet this is a very familiar commodity to most of you. We, we have salt. We use it all the time. It's probably on your kitchen tables. Right? You get a, you get a cut on your leg and you go out into the ocean and ah, it stings, right? It's got medicinal purposes as well, salt does. It's used daily. You put it on the roads when it's icy, right? That's why your cars are rusting on the bottom because of all the salt. It's very familiar. But it was perhaps even more so in Jesus' day. In fact, one commentator notes how salt had at least 11 different purposes in ancient times. 11 different usages. And so I'm sure then that everyone there who is listening to this sermon, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, they would have understood exactly what he means when he says, you are the salt. So what did he mean? 
What does Jesus want to communicate? What does he want to illustrate with this salt metaphor? Well, salt, here we go, as we know, is a spice. It's a condiment that adds flavor to a dish, right? I mean, it's amazing how just a little pinch of salt will change a dish, right? You've had french fries without salt, and then you've had french fries with salt. It's a world apart. So it's used to flavor. In fact, notice we see that's how Jesus even uses it here as well. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, it's a flavor, it's a spice, it seasons food, it makes it pop. Salt also, we know, in the ancient world was used primarily as a preservative. There's no refrigerators in first century Palestine. There are no deep freezes. There are no Yeti coolers in Jesus' day. And so on a hot day, the only way to preserve meat and to keep it from rotting, to keep it from spoiling, was to rub salt on the meat. Here's a science lesson. It reduces the water content as the meat is cured by the salt, and so it slows down the growth of bacteria. Isn't that amazing? So it's mainly used as a preservative to prevent spoiling. However, the Bible also frequently refers to salt as a means of purification. It's a symbol of purity. So for example, in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, we see that salt was to be added to the grain offering in order to purify it. Notice this, Exodus chapter 30, verse 35, it says that the incense offering in the temple, the tabernacle, was to be seasoned with salt so that it would be pure and holy. It has this purifying effect. Or in Ezekiel 16, newborn babies are washed with salt water as a symbol of cleansing. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elijah throws salt into a poison stream and it becomes pure, it becomes fresh water. So salt has this purification, this cleansing. It makes things holy. It makes things pure and clean. But the question is, what does Jesus mean here? Does he mean all of those things? Does he mean none of those things? How do we know what he means? Well, I think that given the context, although I'm I'm not sure we can nail it down to just one of those, I think Jesus primarily has in mind here this idea of purification and preservation. Purification and preservation. Salt purifies, salt preserves, yes, we could say even salt flavors. Now, how do we know that's what he means? Well, first of all, look there at those parallel statements in verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. It's almost identical to the phrase in verse 14, you are the light of the world. So salt and light, these these two metaphors, I think roughly mean equivalent the same thing. And what's the effect salt and light is supposed to have? Look at verse 16. Others will see your good works. 
it's going to have a transforming, purifying effect, and they will give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Transforming, purifying. But also, I think the reason Jesus has in mind here salt as purifying or preserving is because of what we've just seen in the preceding context. The Beatitudes emphasize this idea. Notice, for example, verse 8. Jesus says his disciples will be what? Pure in heart. They'll be pure in heart. Or verse 6. They will desire righteousness in their lives. And then in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to go on to explain what this salty, righteous, pure, preserving life should look like. So what does he mean that we are the salt of the earth? Here it is. The salt of the earth means that Jesus intends for his kingdom citizens to have a transforming, purifying, preserving, flavoring influence in the world. Transforming, purifying, preserving, flavoring influence. He wants them to transform this corrupted, decaying, impure world. I mean, the metaphor salt implies something about the world, doesn't it? What does it imply? It implies that this world is rotting, this world is decaying, this world is impure because of its sin and separation from God. You see that from the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 when man and woman sin in the garden and sin enters into this world. Man is alienated. He's separated from God because of his sin and immediately the world begins to decay. And the church in the world is to be this preserving purifying agent in order to transform the world. That's what he means. Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, says the church as salt is to function as a kind of moral antiseptic in the world. A moral antiseptic. Or listen to what D.A. Carson writes. Quote, notice here, the point of the salt illustration is that Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative in the world. They are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. So that's what it means to be the salt of the earth. We are to hold back moral spiritual decay. We are to purify those we come in contact with as we as we flavor this world, wherever God has placed us, wherever he sprinkled you. Now, how do we do that? How do we purify, how do we preserve, how do we flavor our culture with salt? Well, some might suggest it's by moral protest. Some might say it's by political involvement. Some might say it's by social activism. 
And listen, none of those things are necessarily bad. None of those things are necessarily wrong. Christians should be involved in those spheres. They should be involved in those areas of society to help stop moral corruption, to help stop the decay of our culture. But listen, it doesn't take a Christian to do those things. Does it? You you don't have to be a Christian in order to want a more moral, well-ordered, safe, just society. Do you? Listen to what author Kent Hughes writes. He says, I believe salty Christians exert an incalculable influence on society. Their mere presence reduces crime, restrains ethical corruption, promotes honesty, quickens the conscience, and elevates the general moral atmosphere. Absolutely. Amen. The the presence of such people in the military, in business, in education, in a fraternity or sorority will amazingly elevate the level of living and their absence will allow unbelievable depths of depravity. Absolutely. Yes and amen. But how do we wield this influence, beloved? It isn't mainly by political involvement. It isn't mainly by social activism, as good as those things can be. No, it is by taking our unique role as the salt of the earth and then as we do that in transforming the world by living holy lives and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. That's how. Living holy lives and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. It's the gospel that transforms the world. In fact, that's what we've just seen in the Beatitudes. And it's what we're going to see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as well. What's the Sermon on the Mount supposed to do in your life? Here's what it's supposed to do. It's to make you saltier. It's to make you more salty. As our lives are conformed and shaped to these beatitudes, by the way we, by what we see here about anger and divorce and sexual purity and oaths and retaliating and loving our enemies, and as you and I, we live out this radical righteousness of the kingdom demonstrated here, seen here, it's going to make us this tasty, purifying moral preservative in the world. But it's not going to be just indeed. It will be in word as well as we proclaim the message of the kingdom. As our lives reflect this kingdom lifestyle, it's going to have a transforming effect. Other people are going to notice and they're going to want to know what makes you different. We'll be salty in what we do. We'll be salty in what we say because the gospel must be displayed in our lives and it must also be declared with our mouths. Oh, and by the way, this will usually happen in very mundane, normal, ordinary ways. Being salt 
will be very ordinary. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he speaks in his book on the Sermon on the Mount of the ordinary man who gets up, goes to his office, and his mere presence changes the conversation in the office. Have you, have you seen this? Have you witnessed this? There's been many times, you know, I'm around people and they're talking about whatever, or saying whatever, and they're like, hey, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, and it's, imme- it's amazing how immediately they want to talk about grandma and the church and the faith of grandma, and their conversation changes, the language changes, right? Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, a number of people may be talking together in a rather unworthy manner. Suddenly, a Christian enters into the company, and immediately his presence has an effect. He does not say a word, but people begin to modify their language. He is already acting as salt. All because of the presence of an ordinary, salty Christian. This preserving, purifying, flavoring effect on others. Salting the earth all because of their commitment to Jesus Christ in the very small, very daily, very mundane things of life. Christian, listen to me. You don't have to walk through life scolding the world because of their filthy talk and bad morals. Many times, what causes them to change the jokes they tell or the language they use, or the topics they discuss, what transforms their life is just the mere presence of a salty Christian who's different. Oftentimes, it's just simply salty acts of witness that transform people. Bearing witness to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. But then notice, notice the warning he gives in verse 13. We've we've seen the encouragement. Christian, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are having an impact. You are having an influence. Even you, be encouraged. But look at verse 13. He also gives them a warning. Verse 13, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is Jesus warning them of here? He's saying salt can be contaminated. Salt can become diluted. Salt can become impure. And when that happens, it becomes useless. It loses all its purifying, preserving, flavoring effect. Verse 13, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. What is he warning of here? Friend, he's warning that if you allow yourself to become polluted and corrupted by the world, if your life looks indistinguishable, from the world, if if it's not different from the world and the surrounding culture, you're going to lose all influence in this world. 
And what's most frightening here is it will be near impossible to get it back. Verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Answer, it can't. It can't. No, your witness can be permanently damaged. And your saltiness can't be restored. How many times, I mean, think about that. How many times have you seen and witnessed how the hypocrisy of those who say one thing and live another way does lasting damage to their Christian influence in the name of Christ? Permanent damage. No, you are the salt of the earth, and you must be different. So how is God calling you, Christian, to be salt in the very ordinary, very normal places where he has sprinkled you? In your workplaces, teachers, students, in your schools, your family, your neighborhood, your friend circles, Because then Jesus gives another picture, another answer as to how his disciples are to influence the world. Not only are they to be salt, notice heading number two, they're also to be the light of the world. The light of the world. Now, just as salt is very prevalent, I mean, we understand salt. I think so too, we get light. We we understand that, right? You don't have to, we don't have to work very hard. I think, to try to understand what Jesus means here with this picture of light. Light is the universal symbol for understanding. It's the universal symbol for illumination, right? Enlightenment. It's also, we see in the Old Testament, symbolizes revelation. It symbolizes knowledge. It symbolizes instruction. It symbolizes the divine presence of God. A light shining in darkness. We get that. Now what's amazing here, here's here's what's amazing, is that in John's gospel, John chapter 8, Jesus makes this statement in verse 12. John 8 verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus, he doesn't say, I am a light. (laughs) He says, I am, again, the light, meaning I'm the only light. There's no light outside of me. Everything else is darkness. I am the only light, which is almost identical to his statement when he says in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the only light. And so in a world full of religions, we are claiming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. 
He is the only way to the Father. He is the only light. He is the only way. He is the only truth. I am the only way to God. Which does not set very well in this pluralistic society, does it? What an incredible statement. I'm the light of the world. But you know what's also an incredible statement? Jesus would look at you and I and say, you are the light of the world. You, you sinful, weak, often failing, up and down Christian, not need to become the light, you are the light of the world. That's incredible. What does he mean? What does it mean to be the light of the world? Again, Jesus is speaking here about the Christian's influence and witness in the world as light. And again, he says, look there, verse 14. You are the light. Meaning, Christians, true Kingdom citizens can't help but be light. This is who they are. They will shine as lights. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not only is he saying, you're the only light, you are the sole testifiers to me and my kingdom. Yes. But it isn't as if Christians are merely reflecting the light, right? Like the moon reflects the sun. No, he's saying, because I am in you, I am one with you by faith. The light of Christ is actually emanating, shining forth from inside of you. As you follow me, as you commune with me, as you grow in your understanding of me, as I'm being formed in you, my light will emanate from you. What does it mean to be the light? Again, that implies something about this world, doesn't it? That this world is in darkness, this world is blinded to the truth, this world cannot see, and friends, that was us at one time. You were also dead in your sin. You were also blinded to the truth of the gospel. You didn't have eyes to see. Running your hellbound race. And God, in his infinite grace and mercy, caused the light of Christ to shine upon you. And you saw. He opened your eyes giving you eyes to see Him and understand Him and know Him and love Him and believe in Him, illuminating your sin, illuminating His love for you displayed on the cross, and praise the Lord, you saw the light. And if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, listen to me. What is your greatest problem 
is that not that you need to become a more moral person. It's not that you need to clean up your life. Your greatest problem is you're blind in the dark. And you don't have spiritual eyes to see. And my prayer is that God would open your eyes to see the light. And now grace upon grace, he calls us to be the light. It's the light of Christ in you. What does it mean to be the light? I think it means two things. Look here. One is found outside of this text here, and one is found here in this text. So let me just step out of Matthew here for a moment. I want you to turn with me for just a second to Ephesians chapter 5. Probably the best place I can think of to better understand what it means to be the light. What does it mean to be light? Here's the first thing it means. It means to expose. To expose the darkness. That's what light does. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, do not become partakers with them. It means the unbelieving world. For at one time, you were darkness. You were lost. You were, you were blind. But now, you are light in the Lord. Wow. Where did Paul get that? Probably reading the Sermon on the Mount. You are light in the Lord. Therefore, that's my therefore. Look what he says. So, walk as children in the light. In other words, live like it. Be who you are. Just as Christ has shined upon you, so live like it. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He's saying, give yourself to that. Everything good, everything right, everything true, according to God's word. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, because even when you know what's good and right and true, sometimes you find yourself in some funky situations and you've got to discern what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Be different. Here it is. But instead, expose them. It's not abortion. It's murder. It's not gender reassignment surgery. It's child abuse. It's not shacking up, it's adultery. It's not prayer requests, it's gossip. You expose the darkness. And then look what he says. Verse 12, for if it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, by the way that you're living, the honest way you're talking, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible, this is amazing, is light. In other words, it has this transforming effect. If you will expose the darkness with the light, oftentimes what gets exposed becomes light. That's what he's saying. Therefore, it says, I think he's quoting Isaiah here, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
In other words, when Christians speak simple words of verbal witness and they live simple lives of of faithful obedience, it says to the world in darkness, wake up. Wake up. Arise. Wake up. And the light of Christ will shine on you. That's the first thing it means to be the light. We expose the darkness. But there's something else he wants us to see. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount now. Here's the last thing it means to be the light. To be the light means to shine in such a way for all to see. To shine in such a way for all to see. In other words, you've got to be visible. Look there at verses 14 to 16. Jesus gives here two simple, helpful illustrations of what it means to be the light. Illustration number one, he says, you're a city on a hill. Look there at verse 14. You are the light of the world. Here's his illustration. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, Christian, your light will be visible. It it will be clear. It will be unavoidable. He doesn't say the city on a hill must not be hidden. What does he say? It cannot be hidden. Literally, it's unable. It's impossible to be hidden. And in the same way, just as you can't hide a city on a hill that's lit up at night, I mean, you can see it from miles and miles away, he's saying also, Christian, it's impossible for a true disciple of Jesus not to shine, not to shine in this world. No, it is a faith that will be seen. It is a faith that will be visible. But then he gives a second illustration. Notice, it's a lamp under a basket. Now, this illustration is meant to be nonsense. Look at verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It would be utter nonsense to light a lamp only then to place a basket over the lamp. Can we all agree? Why? Hiding the light defeats the purpose of the light. It's meant to shine. That's his purpose. And in the same way, just as the purpose of the lamp is to give light, he's saying, so also the purpose, beloved, for which you exist in this world is to shine the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Through your righteous living, through your faithful testimony to Jesus, To make it visible for all the world to see. In fact, look there, verse 16. He continues this idea where, notice, this light is actually our good works. Verse 16, in the same way, just as as the city on a hill can't be hidden, just as the purpose of the lamp is to shine, verse 16, let your light, Christian, the light in you, Shine before others so that they may see your good works. So notice light is equated here with good works. And give glory 
to your Father who's in heaven. Which means our simple lives of obedience, living out the righteousness here of the Sermon on the Mount, displayed in these Beatitudes, bearing witness for Jesus, it can actually lead others to be saved and glorify God. They'll see the light in us, and they won't be drawn to us, they'll be drawn to Him. Turning their attention from these little lights to the source of all light. That's what the church is meant to be. That's why we exist. That's why we're here in this world, to be salt and light. And it isn't because of the buildings we inhabit. It isn't because of the power we wield in this world. It is the life we live together under the rule and reign of King Jesus by His Spirit, according to His Word, that will display the glory of God to the world. Living simple, ordinary, salty lives, testifying to the light of the gospel. Doug O'Donnell, he's a a pastor, theologian, he's authored, authored several books. He tells the story of how one simple believer's salt and light led him to glorify God. Listen to what he says, quote, It was the summer of 1990. I had just graduated from high school and I was selected to play basketball in the Prairie State Games. Now apparently that's something here in Illinois, or it used to be at least back in the 90s. Sort of like the Olympics for Illinois, apparently. Most of the guys on the team were typical guys. We swore a lot. We talked disrespectfully about girls. And as superstar athletes, we were full of ourselves. But one guy on the team was noticeably different. His name was Mark Davidson. Mark never swore on or off the court. He only talked and acted respectfully toward women. He treated everyone on the team, including the water boy with dignity and kindness. And he was humble, even though he was the best player on the team. In fact, he was voted the best player in the state of Illinois. Mark was a Christian. I knew this by the Bible he kept next to his bed in his dorm room and the openness of his conversation. But also, most importantly, his godly behavior, and his good works. I became a Christian about a year and a half, says Doug O'Donnell, after tasting the salt and seeing the light of Mark Davidson. His behavior made it clear to me as it settled during those months upon my conscience what it means to follow Jesus. And beloved, I'm sure Mark Davidson had no idea the impact and the influence his life would have on someone who would go on to author many books, pastor a church, preach the gospel. In fact, I wonder if Mark Davidson ever thought that his simple witness, not swearing, not lusting, and loving Jesus would make any difference at all. And brothers and sisters, who knows? The witness that you have right now who will be a Christian a year and a half from now because of the little acts of obedience 
and your normal Christian living, being salt and light, transforming the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that the light of the world has come into our darkness. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see, to come to him in saving faith. That you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Oh, may we be a church. May we be a church so transformed by the light of Christ as we keep our eyes on him, as we turn our eyes to him, that we would emanate the light of Christ, that we would be salt and light in the places where you've sprinkled us, living ordinary Christian lives, influencing, impacting this world for the sake of the kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.